Well, hello and welcome to episode 142 of The Cool Room, uh, an excellent discussion that I, your host David Griffiths, and my very good friend Mr Warren Wu have with the team from Prancing Pony, uh, It's a Ripper. We get both Eden, who's now the senior brewer there, and Frank, the founder, talking about some magnificent beers that they've made and the collaborations and the way they work together. Uh, I think it's a really fascinating conversation and, of course, we enjoy some fantastic beers while we have it. Uh, and you, too, can enjoy those beers if you head on over to our Shopify store, uh, track down the Prancing Pony tab. Uh, you can buy a tasting pack which accompanies this episode, and that way you'll be able to sip on the beers while you listen to the podcast. Uh, it's a great way to support what we do here on the podcast and, of course, means that it's a much more enjoyable experience for you as you listen. Uh, not too many other notes. Make sure you check out our Facebook page for all of the other events that we have coming up. And uh, please, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, do that too. That's a great way of making sure that uh, our listenership continues to grow and guarantees that we can have some awesome guests on, just like Prancing Pony. Without any further ado, let's go over to the interview. Warren Wu tonight is hailing from parts unknown, as we say in the wrestling industry. Warren Wu, I normally say Warren Wu, how are you? This time it's Warren Wu, where are you? Ah, I am in beautiful, warm, uh, far north Queensland, so in Cairns, or in, in, um, in Palm Cove to be more accurate. Uh, so yeah, just um, had a wonderful day, just uh, driving the kids around, touring the sites of Palm Cove, which was really good. Um, haven't visited... McAllister's, which is the norm, which is the uh, the local brewery they've got in Cairns, but um, I'll I'll try find some time to to knock over a paddle there at some point. Um, what I've tried from theirs is pretty good, and then, like I really love the fact that a lot of the pubs uh, around the area have got their stuff on tap. So yeah, it's real. It's good to see kind of other businesses supporting the the local brewery product um i don't know much about them but yeah i'll find out and we'll report back but i am very excited um to be with uh, tonight to be speaking about a, a south australian brewery absolutely um, it feels like a little yeah. while since we've had a south australian brewery on the show so yeah. why don't you get things underway sounds like a plan Okay, so tonight we are lucky enough to have Frank, one of the founders, or the founder, and uh, Eden um, joining us from Pantsing Pony, and we're going to do the traditional, uh, the traditional um, introduction. What do we call it? The introduction. Um, I don't know theme the where we the get self introduction. Yeah, self introduction where we get where we'll we'll start by asking Eden and be honest. And Frank <laughs> about Frank. All right, oh, um, and also, oh, sorry, and the one to include is you've got to also let us know what their favourite beer is. Favourite non-prancing pony beer. Non-prancing pony beer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I keep on forgetting that bit. Okay. Oh, is a challenge. <laughs> well, my name's Eden Pink. I have been working as a brewer at Prancing Pony Brewery for coming on six years now. Uh, and this is Frank, Frank Sampson. Um, he is the head brewer and founder of Prancing Pony, and it's been going for close to 10 years now, so it's going pretty well. Um, Frank, your favourite beer that is not Prancing Pony, I've got no idea. Uh, <laughs> something, <laughs> something from Bavaria or... That, 
Aiden, is it because Aiden, is it because he's got so many beers he loves, or he just hasn't really let you into that little? No, no, no. no. It's a for Frank. It's a um. It just what? How do you? It's when when you're wanting that beer so badly. Absolutely, it, it depends a lot on the situation and circumstances. And what your best beer is maybe something different in two months' time. So I have mm-hmm. had many very, very good beers. You know, some of the best beers I had in hindsight were very average beers, but I got my hands on them after having not had a beer for three weeks, for example, and then it is the best beer in the world because you're hanging out for any beer. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very good point. There's a big difference between the best beer you've ever had Mm -hmm. and the beer that you'd like to drink every day. So there's, you know, there's a big difference between those two things. Um, There's also a big difference between... uh, the the beer that suits that exact moment like you yeah if you haven't had a beer in a couple of months that first one is going to taste magical and it could almost be yeah there's a lot of things that could be even a passable one is magical but frank yeah tell us about eden tell us what's what and and yeah and, and uh what's also her favorite beer uh she likes hoppy pails and ipas hazies as well mm-hmm what her favorite beer is, I think we'd heard similar to me, that, that, that changes. For example, yesterday we tasted a German dark Hefeweizen. It was delicious. And we're still talking about it. This was at least the best beer this week. And we had to have two to make sure it was definitely the best beer that we had this week. What, um, what, uh, who's, who's, uh, who's Hefeweizen? Who's dark Hefeweizen? It was... Uh, not Brian Stefano. No, no, the Francis. Uh... Ah, Francis yeah, yeah, yeah. Francis Garner Brewery from mm-hmm. Munich. Oh, there we go. Here's another one that we need to travel to Munich to find out about, Warren. We couldn't possibly mm-hmm. research it from Melbourne. We need to go to Munich to find out. Yeah, yeah, we have to. There's no other choice. Uh, you can't do this. Yeah. You can't do this from all the way over here. <laughs> so um, Eden's been brewing with us six years, she said, uh, and she's started from scratch basically she was originally working behind the barn she was Mm -hmm. always looking over to the brew house i really want to work over there one day and then okay we we try you out and we quickly realized she has an excellent palate and she has the right words to describe the flavors of the beer and we taught her to brew on the equipment and all the rest and she's the senior brewer now and she's at least 28% faster than I am. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a very precise number. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we measure stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for the last 141 episodes, we always dive in and talk about um, how we, we want to get involved in the history of, of the brewery, um, but we always forget to actually talk about the beer we start with till we're pretty much finished so why now given that we're we've started with um we start with the blaze of haze and it sounds like uh Eden that this is this is kind of this has your hand on it given that Frank has mentioned that you've you you uh fresh hopping and and hazy is a part of your to have your um 
your area of expertise. Uh, so let's talk about this beer. Can you give us a bit of a, a walkthrough of, of what we should be tasting? And then is it is it what you 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 had in mind? Is it is it where it, yeah is it what it, it should be? And and yeah, where where did the idea come from? Well, we kind of wanted to aim um, for something in between a hazy and a Pacific ale, which mm-hmm. I haven't really had many of, and I don't think Frank had either. Oh yeah. <laughs> An order start. Yeah. Um, and we wanted to use some hops that are a little bit different to what you find in your normal hazies. Um, and we were trying to bring out a sort of more berry character. So we shipped a few different hop varieties over and um, tried to develop that flavour. But because of the hop short- shortages of those hop varieties, um, we've had to do some changes. But we are really happy with how it's turned out. It's very hop forward. Um, it's got got golden oats in there as well so it's got a little bit of that caramel um finish to it as well it's not too dry um i love it even though it's it measures dry on paper on the taste you you feel that little nutty maltiness which required love because it's actually quite difficult to get that impression of a slight nice hop flavour in in the end, even though it's a very dry beer on paper. Can I say, before we ask a few more questions about this beer, I'd really like everyone to keep a little bit of this beer in the glass so that we can taste it next to the Zeppelin, which is the beer we're going to move on to next. Just so we've got a bit of comparison about hazy beers and the different kinds of things that hazies can be. But can you tell us a little bit more about the hops that you just mentioned there, the ones that you initially... Yeah, so in this one specifically, we've got um, Ariana, um, which is actually a, a German varietal. Yeah. Um, and that sort of brings out a strawberry-esque um, lemon-like fruitiness. And mm-hmm. then we've also got Lupomax Callista in there as well. So that is also really berry forward, um, a little bit of citrus. Um, yeah. Some apricots. Some apricot, <clears throat> stone fruit. As, yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, one of the people in the Zoom room uh, in the chat, and we keep on encouraging people to come and join us live, uh, said gentle fruit. And I think that's a really nice way to sort of describe yeah, uh, the flavours that we're getting from this beer. because It's not so much like an orange juice as you'd find yeah. with most hazies in that sense. That's not what we were going for with this beer. Yeah, I and it feels it feels super sessionable, like that the yes. kind of that 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 I think um, the golden oats gives it just a really like I'm sitting here and it's still 26 degrees, but I could just drink a million of them in a you just really. Wanted to really emphasize yeah, yeah, that's the, the idea. However, <laughs> it's 26 degrees, didn't we? We did that's it. <laughs> that's the idea. Yeah, now, I think that dryness. You're right. There is that 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 lingering hint of of sweetness. But then, then yeah, it's bone dry, so you just want to keep on drinking. Yeah, it's really lovely. Um, should we? All right, we'll come back and we'll, we'll ask some more questions about the beer itself. But but let's talk about Prancing Pony. All right, ten years old. Yeah. Um, what what made you decide ten years ago, like a decade ago, like yeah, whoa, um, to 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 uh, open a brewery? What what where where did it all begin? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And 
I often thought about it. And what I thought the reasons were for me to open the brewery 10 years ago, are a little bit different now because I always cast my mind back further and further and further where it all began. And you can actually go back to childhood memory as strange as it sounds. And in my case, it has to do with flavor. I always was fascinated how one can tickle out nice flavors out of simple ingredients. It's like an onion you pull out of the ground or whatever grows in your garden. And when I discovered beer and got into home brewing, without me realizing it at the time, it's actually the same process. You have some very basic materials that pop out of the ground, get harvested, and you convert it into this nice beverage. And it's kind of fascinating to create flavors. And to me, a comparison is always to music. And you can say as a brewer, what kind of beer do you like to do? And I would say for the pony, we play the blues. It's sort of appealing to most people and it's not too offensive, but you bob along. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and within the genre, you can have many variations. It's infinite. But even if you never heard it before, you will say, well, that's a blues number, even though you <laughs> never heard it. So this is sort of the analogy in what we do in beer here. Anyway, it goes back maybe 20 years, I started to think about, Frank, maybe one day you want to open a business. And I thought, what, what would it be? And I always thought about some food-related business. And believe it or not, I was so, sort of semi-serious opening up a tomato sauce company. <laughs> uh, instead of uh, Paul Newman's spaghetti sauce, it would be Frank's spaghetti sauce. Now, but that didn't eventuate. And I was home brewing for decades. And it sort of went that way until one day Corinna said, you like doing that so much, you should open a business because I wasn't happy with my job in and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And I said, you're out of your mind. It's, it's half the salary and three times the hours. <laughs> and I was right, it's still the case. <laughs> you knew what you were about to get involved in. Lots of other oh, people don't realize before they start. And, uh, I, uh, well, I was home brewing in the kitchen. I nearly burned the stove down and Corinna threw me out. And that's it. You got to go to the shed. And I think that was the beginning of Branson Pony Brewery because then I could increase the brew kit from 19 to 50 liters, then 100 liters. And I brewed so much beer I couldn't possibly drink. And I gave it away. And everybody came back and said, this tastes really good. You should open a brewery. And I said, you're out of your mind. There's no money in that. <laughs> But anyway, one day a, a friend of ours said, I'm going to put money on the table, let's do it. So we partnered up, we formed the company in early 2011, and I spent most of my time setting up the brewery and all the paperwork. And about August 2012, I, was, I had to work full time on the brewery project even though we didn't open the door to the public until December 2012. And we started quite modest with modest beers. We weren't really in hoppy beers then at the time. 
thought myself, I still need to learn the straps here. And I, I haven't been a commercial brewer before. And we just did a blonde and an amber ale when we launched. And we still do the amber ale 10 years since. So it has durability. And then we added up a regular pile, then the black, and then the India red ale. And we can talk about it later. So this was sort of the motivation that got me into brewing. Obviously, the love for beer and playing with flavors as well. Now, you, you clearly have a very strong American accent there. So, no, hang on. No. <laughs> Tell us it. No, I'm being silly. Tell us about the childhood that you had, where you grew up, and how that influences some of those beers as well. Because Yeah, I hail from Germany, as you rightly guessed. And because of my lovely accent, you will believe every word I say. <laughs> <laughs> What part of Germany? Tell us a little bit about uh, that. Southern Germany near Stuttgart. So I grew up on a lager diet, basically Hellasin style and Hefeweizen. And it was, in hindsight, pretty boring because every brewery made the same beer and they still do. <laughs> <laughs> it's good quality beer and reliable, but it, it becomes boring after a while. And coming to Australia... In 82, so it's 40 years ago now, what fascinated me about, amongst many other things, was the beer tasted different. Not in, I would not say in a bad way. Uh, I found it a little more bitter than the sweet tasting German lagers. And I was drinking a lot of green death. So this is something bitter. <laughs> <laughs> And, and people are, oh, this was atrocious beer. I said, no, 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 I liked it. This was good because it was different. It was a little more bitter. So I developed a taste for these sort of ales because these kind of ales that you won't find in Germany. But the price is, of course, pretty steep here because of mm -hmm. the excise. So in 1983, I think it was a cold supermarket of Foodland, can't remember I saw the first Cooper's homebrew kit. And oh, it came, yes. It came in a 20-liter bladder. <laughs> At that time, they haven't worked out to turn it into syrup and put it in a can. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. I take this home and try it out. And, of course, the first few brews were complete disasters. But we learned from there and eventually, probably late 80s, I started traveling to California uh, work-wise with the job I had. And that was the first time I was introduced to craft beer. So I had my first Anchor Steam followed by Sierra Nevada, and I was fascinated. I came home and said to myself, I got to learn how to do these because they're more hoppy. And I went into all grain brewing and it developed from there. Um, Eden, it's it sounds like you you aren't a, you haven't come from strictly a brewing background. But did you brew? Did you do any homebrew when you were you were growing up? Where did your background come from? Well, um, yeah, so I did do homebrewing with my dad, and I was um, a beer guzzler ever since I could be, probably <laughs> before I should have been, and. I just, I, I was fascinated. I actually studied, um, I studied naturopathy when I first got out of high school and I left that 
when I decided what I wanted to do um, because my passion for brewing just far outtook anything that I was studying at the time. Um, but, yeah, it was it was more a fascination and I was only 19. So this is basically my whole adult life has been beer and the beer industry. Wow. Yeah. It's, that's, yeah. I think if a few of us has pro have probably got similar similar stories at different ages where, yeah, we get to get taken in by, by, yeah, just the love of it, the diversity of it, like Frank was talking about. Um, <clears throat> can can, can uh, I chime in with a question, Warren? Yeah, because of one, yeah. one of the things that we love here in the room when we've got two guests on together is learning what is the same about their worldview and what's different. And that often makes, you know, it's interesting mm. to hear the contrast. Eden was the one who chose the lineup of beers tonight and who chose the Blaze of Haze as the first beer. And I'm wondering, Frank, would that have been the first beer that you would choose in a lineup? Or is this a little bit of an insight into Eden's palate as opposed to your palate? I probably would have ended up very, very similar. And, you know, in a, in a session like that, you do start out with a lighter beer and work your way up. Uh, I probably would have made a mistake and started with our uh, West Coast IPA and then realised hmm, <laughs> going for place of haze after that is probably not a good idea because it, your taste buds are overwhelmed by the hop you had before. So I think she made a good choice and thinking about it, I, I would have come up pretty much with the same. The, the reason I ask is, and Mark said in the courtroom that we've got the lager in the pack and yet we haven't started with the lager, and for many people that would be the, the well, first. So. Well, I was asked to pick out of four. So I was asked to pick four, and this beer to me, the Blazer Haze, is very exciting. It's new. Um, why well, this is what I want to hear. Yeah. Me. Why not showcase it? It's exciting for us to have new beers. Um, and, you know, when you're working in a brewery and you're drinking beer a day, it, it, it becomes your best beer, whatever's mm. new, because it's... It's exciting and delicious and fresh. And what we don't drink, we sell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it reminds me a little bit, and I'm showing my absolute age here, that for those people who grew up with SPC, the uh, the fruit company in central Victoria, yes, their, yes. their ad or their sort of logo used to be, we eat what we can and we can what we can't. Oh, very good. <laughs> And Thank so there's a little, a little bit of the same philosophy there. Mm -hmm. of, does that mean that all the lager goes home with you? Frank, what's different about your lager to those lagers that you grew up with? Before we move on to talking about hazies, and we're probably going to open up the Zeppelin in a minute to have the two yeah. hazies next to each other. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to deviate too much from the original, but we let it be a little more spicy on the hop side. And, and you taste it, but of course it's still a lager, so it, it's not as, let's say, a hop plant like a Helles, where you should barely taste the hop or, or smell it. So it's it's definitely got a hop nose, but it's not intrusive, but it's just there. It's a, it's to a, make it a little different. A little crafty. <laughs> Now we're going to start to transition from uh, from the blaze of haze to the zeppelin, 
so this is, this is an interesting sort of conversation to be had here about the Zeppelin was the one that was already in the in the lineup. It's the six point six percent hazy. Why did you choose to make a the blaze of haze as a slightly dialed down version of a hazy? I guess what was that about? Well, that we we got asked a lot about a, a lower alcohol hazy. Uh, people love our Zeppelin as they do other products in that niche, and there is a trend towards slower alcohol to some extent. I mean, some is a bit artificial exaggerated. Say, so, oh, let, let's try this out. There, there probably is a good market for that. And then we thought we don't want to make a little brother of the Zeppelin. You know, we could just bring the alcohol down of the Zeppelin, but it's done the same hot pro profile and all the rest. So we rather came up with something new and different and Eden had explained what that is. So on the hop, it smells completely different. It tastes completely different. And it's a it's a lighter body. It's the mouth feel and the finish actually is like more more like a Pacific pale ale, but mm. it is hazy like a neighbor. And it has a bit more hop nose than the Pacific would have in that style. And of course, as well with the blaze of haze, it's a lot lighter in body and alcohol. So you're not getting as much as the sort of stone fruit plum as you do um, in higher alcohol ferments, but you're still getting a really refreshing beer that you want to drink multiple of. Whereas if you have 12 of these versus 12 of those, you know which way you're going to turn out. <laughs> and Eden, how much sort of experimentation did you do with the blaze of haze to sort of get that nuancing right, as opposed to the, the Zeppelin, which obviously part of the core range, but sort of gets to be that sort of bold Nipah sort of style? Well, we did play around quite a lot and we did a lot of research as well. And mm. I mean, like weeks of research on these hops and their availability and how we want this beer to be. Um, I feel like there's, yeah, there's not um, enough information for people about how how long it takes to develop a beer and mm. what style you want it to be and agreeing with everybody what what that style um, presents and what what way you want it to come out with the hops and the yeast and the fermentation characteristics. So, um, yeah, just. Yeah, and we had a, a precursor to it. Uh, we sometimes do what we call an experimental series. So it's just E for experimental and a number like E8, E9, and so on. And these are our pilot brews for a beer that's under development. So we don't have to do it again, or if it doesn't turn out the way we anticipated it, it's okay. If it's balanced enough and drinkable, we put it on tap and people like it. But it gives us the opportunity to learn and iterate to the next one. And it may be another experimental, but if it tastes the way we want it, we bring it out under the label as intended. Um, I'm, I'm aware that, the, Frank, you mentioned before that uh, Eden, Eden spoke about the beers the right way when, when well, in, in a particular way that you guys appreciated um, before she started brewing with you. Um, it, how much, Eden, how much is that driven by the wine industry? We've, we've, we haven't had that many South Australian, um, South Australian brewers on 
And it's interesting. I've always wondered, does does kind of the wine language dip into the 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 beer language in South Australia more than it does maybe? Uh, yeah. I, I suppose, yes, maybe. Um, but for me, I, again, I started this when I was 19, so I only mm. really had one year experience of drinking at that time. Um, so the wine industry to me was a bit bleh because I hadn't really drank much wine at that point either. My main focus was drinking beer with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the main thing is smelling something, relating that to a memory and then being able to describe what it smells like. Mm. So, you know, a lot of go, oh, it smells fruity, whereas I'll go, I smell stone fruit, I get peaches, I get yep. dried figs. So it's just being able to pick out that smell because you remember it from somewhere else. So a lot of it's to do with experience in food. Um, and relating it back to something that you've already had, but then being able to describe what that is. And it's just, you've just got to drink more beer. (laughs) Can can I ask, in that that context, if if anyone who's managed to keep the two beers next to each other, what flavours or on the nose, what should be the things that we're getting next to each other? What should be the ones where we go, oh, there is stone fruit in both of those or... So there is a small amount of stone fruit in both of them. I definitely get strawberry up front with the blaze of haze, as well as that little bit of caramel note from the um, the oats. You get a little bit of a biscuity bready breadiness to it, and very light esters. Sort of, you get the pear and the esters that come yeah. through as well. And so, the hop in this is it's it's not so much as a a fruitful forward hop it's more specifically mild and easier to drink whereas when you go into the zeppelin you know we've got mandarin and bavaria in the zeppelin we've got citra uh, galaxy so it is a fruit bomb and the idea of this is that it's extremely juicy and um trying to really really hard to get that citrus and that being you know mandarins um lemons a little bit of lime peel So hop-wise, the place of haze is more like silk mm. and the zeppelin is more like a heavy red velvet curtain. <laughs> yeah, and the, the yeah. ABV, um, yeah, obviously does give a little bit more flavour and body, but also the IBUs are quite different to both of these. So, you know, and you kind of want to balance it as well. So you've got a lower alcohol um, hazy beer. You want it to be well drinking. So you don't really want to have 60 IBU and it just wouldn't be appropriate. So. Now, what have we got? 20, 29. 29, yeah. And, and how many, of are there any similar hops between both beers or is it really that None. sort of distinct? No. Completely different. Yep. Yep. Kept it completely different and the malt profile is also quite different. And so when, when you start to design those things, I mean, it must have been a, Tell me a little bit more about what happened, Eden, when you went to Frank with the idea for the blaze of haze or the recipe, or did Frank come to you? What was? Well, we both. So Frank and I work very closely together. Um, we, well, we drink a lot of beer. We work with the beer, and every single time that we decide to make another batch of beer, we it's you know it's quality control, and you taste it and you decide where it wants to go, and um, and we sort of fill the gaps where we're missing in our core range. And so we realised that we wanted to have something that was quite hop forward, but also really sessionable. Um, and that also sort of um, went into that fashion of hazy. As everybody knows, we are on a 
haze train. It's like a, a hazy train, haze yes. Train. <laughs> <A> hazy train. <laughs> Uh, so it's, it was more a discussion than one of us coming up with one or the other. So that, that's how we work generally. And then we discuss and we both put our two cents in and this is the outcome. The, the hazy train discussion is one we often have here on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're usually fairly open about saying, you know, some breweries choose to do it because they think there's a financial imperative to do it. Others do it because they love playing with those sort of flavours. Where do you guys fit on on that sort of end of things? Because there is a business as well as the... Yeah, of course. It's a bit of both. Uh, I definitely love the style, but it frustrated me maybe the first six months, even a year, and I always said to him, this is the hardest beer I ever tried to brew, or or we did. It's a pain. (laughs) It took us a while to sort it, especially in terms of maintaining haze, stable haze. Uh, we had very hazy beers, but in two weeks' time, they cleared up. And, ah! <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it, it is a hard beer to get right. But if you do, it, it is a good beer. We like it. And it's sort of this whole biotransformation and polyphenolics, you know, proteins and um, the way that stable haze works, more information came out about that and already like very much available way after we really made the Zeppelin. Yeah. So we were sort of experimenting trying to get the haze to stay in suspension. So we finally got that by throwing throwing in at different times of ferment. Um, and yeah, it's been a fun so, so how does that we don't want you to give away all the trade secrets, but we obviously have a lot of home brewers and we've had I remember when Sierra Nevada were very were on with us one time and they were saying that hazies was something they were never going to produce and they had to go through that experimentation phase mm. and teach themselves how to make a shelf stable uh hazy it's there are a number of ways of achieving that same outcome it's a bit like a pen and teller magic show you can do the you can do the same trick three different ways kind of thing well we decided when we were trying all these hazies when we first wanted to start developing this beer is that a lot of places at that point in time and this is no shade um, we're just using yeast that stay in suspension, which is just not the flavour or smell profile that you want. Well, that we wanted in the beer because it just it just starts dying and it just starts tasting of autolysis and it just gives you a really thick, um, dusty, thick, dusty yeah. chewy mouthfeel, which was not what we wanted. So we decided to go down the hot path and figure out how to do that. Yeah, we never wanted to add fruit pulp or even starches, flowers and so on, uh, which a lot of brewers applied back in the time. Maybe some still do. Everybody experimented and tried things out, but we wanted to stay to the basic B ingredients. And, and can I ask, it's an interesting sort of question, particularly for people you know, like yourselves who've been around for a while, do you remember the first hazy beer that you actually drank for for both of you? Like, was and and we your response to it before, yeah, yeah, and uh, I think it probably was cheddar juice. Yep. Oh yeah. As it was yeah. allowed to be called at the time. Times have changed. Yeah, it was either that or squeaky from sauce. Oh, and bubble and squeak. Bubble and squeak. Mm. And Eden, is that the same sort of answer for you? Or? Um, my, I remember my 
first, I don't remember which one it was, but I remember my first ever hazy neighbor. I absolutely hated. There was <laughs> something vastly, vastly wrong with it. And um, it just, it left a bad taste in my mouth for the style. Um, but then after I tried, um, yeah, similar beers to what Frank just said, um, Bubble and Squeak, Jedi Juice, um, back when it was actually Jedi Juice, um, the chop, anything from there, Pop Nation, um, all of their hazies that, you know, got me on mm. the hazy train. Hazy train. I, I feel like we're sort of jumping around through our questions a little bit. We sort of need to go back to one of the earlier questions that we were oh, going yeah. to ask about South Australia. You guys Australian... asked about the history of the brewery. Well, yeah, and South I mean, Australian the brewery. Room, yeah. South Australian brewing in particular. And in some ways, uh, for our Norwegian uh, nor and you know, brew, uh, friends who listen in, South Australia has Coopers, which is sort of an iconic Australian beer brand. Mm. And that's as hazy as beer was for most of us growing up in the 80s and 90s. Um, tell us a little bit from both of your perspectives, obviously with a bit of distance between them, what you think was sort of the South Australian brewing legacy that was different to the rest of Australia and how the scene over there is going now. Well, definitely Coopers made... Yeast, suspend, yeast suspended haze acceptable in a trademark. And they managed to establish that interstate. And I remember maybe in the 80s that, or even later, Coopers had not sold interstate. And they actually did the hard work in making hazy beers fashionable or acceptable, even though it's not a hazy as we drink here, it was just mm. Eastern suspension. And then it became a bit easier to bring a pale ale out that is a little bit yeast suspended, has a slight haze and sell it into interstate, whereas before it's, oh, it's just a Coopers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think that they actually helped uh, the craft beer industry here to get acceptance with the early beers we did that may have had a bit more haste that was not acceptable in the state at the time. I grew up drinking Cooper's Pale Ale. So for me, it's um, quite uh, comforting having a Cooper's Greenie. And so, yeah, that's that's just what I grew up with. Um, but seeing it, seeing you know, South Australia developed the hazier, the better as far as what we can see in the market. So when we talk to people, say, from Queensland or even bits from New South Wales, they say there's a real momentum and a lot of excitement going on. Is that how you describe the South Australian craft scene and what should we Oh, yes. I mean, when we started 10 years ago, there were a handful of craft breweries, maybe six. Now there's 65 brands. There's maybe 50 breweries, the rest is contract, but it's, let's say, a tenfold increase over 10 years, and they're still popping up all the time. There's lots of little ones, and they all gain traction. Usually the newcomers gain instant traction because where this industry is now, or where the customer and the market is now, they get attracted to the new like a magnet. So that works in favor of a newcomer. You just come out, hey, I'm new, this is a new brand. Everybody jumps on and tries that beer. So that's good for them. 
and that other people see that, oh yeah, let's start that. I'm a home brewer, I'm gonna start a brewery and then I'm gonna be billionaire when I got bought out one day. So 600 breweries are waiting for that dream to happen, <laughs> <laughs> but we all try. <laughs> Can I ask, it's it's a question that, again, we, we spend a bit of time in the podcast uh, talking about an idea that we spend a bit of time thinking about, which is the challenge in that market that you've just described. I think you've described it very well of how many beers do you have in a core range versus how many beers do you have as limiteds in a market where people always yeah. want something new. As a publican, I knew it was always difficult to sell the same beer to someone twice even if they said they loved it the first time, they wouldn't They wouldn't want it the second night they came in. I think it's a huge challenge. And we decided long ago not to go down the path of having a new beer every week or maybe even every day. So we have a new release either as a once-off or maybe it's a seasonal, comes back in a year time, three, four times a year. So we try to cultivate loyalty to our core range because that, to me, is the mechanism to build a brand. If you have a new beer out all the time, you attract the disloyal portion of the consumer because they run around to the next brewery next week. And many pride themselves of never have drunk the same beer twice in their life. And you can easily do that. It's so much variety coming out. 600 breweries and many of them bring out a beer new week. You can spend a thousand years and never drink the same beer twice. But these are the people that are not very loyal to your brand. They're just loyal to the new. I think that's a really insightful comment. I mean, it's, it's a fairly blunt comment, but uh, I always found it so frustrating when I was selling beers to people. And they'd tell me how much they loved a beer and they wouldn't ever drink it again. And it was like, <laughs> what more would you want this brewer to do? Like, I want, I want the next thing. I want almost like I want the sequel to the movie on the same day that I saw the movie. Yeah, and that's, I think it's impossible to do. Because... Mm. What do these people want next? And I, I'm not blaming the consumer here. I mean, it is exciting to be able to go to the bottle shop and have a, a new beer all the time. But I see it here in our front of house because every Friday we sit around and have a yarn and our customers, our regulars come in and every so often they're bringing six beers they bought at random in a bottle shop. and say, oh, let's try them out. And they all knew beers. And when we finished, they all disappointed. Oh, I spent all this money and I really only like one. So, um, again, don't tell us things you don't want to, but I'm fascinated to know over the years with your core right, range, were there things that lasted in the core range for five or six years that you eventually dropped out or you spoke of the pride you had in those very early beers, the ones that have made it for 10 years? What's what's we, lasted and what hasn't out of that? Yeah, we, we dropped some out that were core range. Uh, they were sluggish seller. And when we dropped out, the fans cried, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But as I said, we have the embryo from day one. This is 10 years old. We have the black isle. We did that in 2013. So that's old. Uh, the India red, that was year, 2013 also. So that's nine years old. And yeah, we haven't dropped too many core range beers out. And we always struggle. We can't try too many core range because that's, that's too hard because then I have the wrong stainless steel kit here. Instead of big tanks, I need 100, 100 liter tanks. Then <laughs> <laughs> I yep. can do lots of new beers all the time. And, and it just doesn't work. It has to work for, for the whole business you invested in. And if your tanks are this big, you need to fill them up to make it economical. I do want to point out we've got a really good question, which is the and which have evolved. Oh, mm. which have evolved. Because I think that's worth mentioning as well, because as time goes on, people's palates adjust um, to what's popular in the market as well. So beer, and I know this with many other breweries as well, they do the same. They develop their beers all the time, you know, to make it a little bit more acceptable for the consumer. So I think every single beer that you had now to what you had 10 years ago, whether it be Cooper's or whether it be something else, is going to be probably quite significantly different if you had it side by side. But it's what is relevant at the time and what people's palates are doing now to what they did 10 years ago. What a hobby beer five years ago to now is very, very, very different. Are there any particular examples you'd point to yes. in the printing? Yeah, the, the, the Piper, which is our West Coast IPA style. Uh, we constantly worked on that after we had it up for six months or so and changed the hop profile a little every so often. What we found is the acceptance for dunk IPAs has diminished in recent years. When we started this beer, we tried to emulate what the Californian brewers did 25 years ago when this was first time, what's called a West Coast IPI. And, and they were quite dank, you know, they had Columbus in there, what have you. And we wanted to recreate that with our own twist. And we realized the consumer has moved away a little from that. They're now seeking the more fruity, but still uh, intense hop in an IPI. And maybe that's because they're now used to that from the high seas and they want to see the same in a straight West Coast IPA as well, just without the highs. So we tweaked it and to our likes, actually, we, we like what we've done and I think it's more acceptable. It's going better now. So that, that's an example of where, where we change. And the challenge is that you change just so little that hopefully nobody realizes it. Quite <laughs> <laughs> slowly over time. There's also a question here of, do you have to tweak the hops and malt because of seasonal variability? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we yes. are craft. So the this, yeah. is, this is the best thing about craft is raw material and what is available to you and how it changes. So... The real art is probably trying to 
find the same flavour and aroma with completely different hops and, and malt. It's more so the hops that may run out. Yeah. Uh, it could be a common hop, like one year we didn't have Galaxy. Galaxy just ran out. Mm. And I was forced to order it from American homebrew shops at an exorbitant price. So it was shipped from Tasmania all the way to America, and I buy it back. Figure that. <laughs> what a, isn't that a weird sort of thing to think about when you really think about the logistics that sit behind that? Yeah. Uh, in a minute, we're going to have a little break so that people can grab the next couple of beers that they need. But Eden, I really wanted to ask you the question about your Pinker's beer, the uh. sort of signature uh, beer to celebrate your time at the brewery. It's a Brute IPA. Um, why did you choose that style? It's a style, again, that you <coughs> refer to a bit on the way. Why that one? I guess it's, yeah, it's a bit out of fashion. Um, so I would, leading up to the beer, um, I was coming onto my five years here at The Pony and it was uh, beer and barbecue two, <coughs> two years ago or something that we were talking about um, about it. And I said, oh, I've, I've been here like a fifth of my life now. And Karina said, oh, we'll have to make, it, we'll have to make a beer. And originally it was going to be a 20% beer. Um, but then we realised the release was going to be dead set in the middle of summer and that wasn't really going to work. Um, so I decided to go for something a little bit different um, that I was pretty keen on because for me, as I said, the raw material um, speaks for itself for beers and I wanted to try something that I have not tried before. So I wanted to try using a yeast called DA16. It is a brute IPA yeast I could find absolutely no information, um, reviews, anything whatsoever on this year. So I was kind of taking a bit of a risk there. Um, and what I wanted was something that was completely bone dry, like a champagne, but really, really fruity on the nose and flavour. I really wanted to try and get, so what I actually threw in there was El Dorado, Sabro, Citra and Amarillo. So I was really trying to get that lolly, coconut, citrus, bright, in-your-face um, aroma and flavour, but having a completely dry mouthfeel. And it actually ended up for some of you, if you know, um, zero Plato, and it took two days to ferment. Two days. Oh, wow. And this was a high ABV beer. <laughs> it was absolutely, it performed so well and it was such a good yeast to use. So, And the intriguing thing about that beer, I quite like it, it's, it leaves a sweet taste on the tongue. But well, there's zero plate, or where's it coming from? So it, it must be from the hop it's or from sensation, the, hop. the hops. And the, um, the specific hops that I used, I was going for a much oilier hop so that it did leave a slickness so it didn't end up too dry and astringent um, from the hop character. Yeah, we, we love to explain. You know, we have some listeners who are way more expert than myself in terms of beer and how it's made but we also have a number of listeners who are new to it all we've used that term plato a couple of times there it's not something we've spoken about in podcasts for a few episodes can you just explain what that means and what it means to you as a term? essentially it means grandpa hundred mil and how does that express itself like if you were oh, trying sugar. to explain so it's a basically specific gravity it's yeah. it, it was specifically developed for brewers and one plato means it in the liquid you measure, it's got 1% is fermentable. If you measure 10 plate or 10% is fermentable. So 
So these are the sugars from the malt that are fermentable. It corresponds fairly well to just specific gravity. So if you have zero plate, it means you have no sugar, no fermentable sugar left. And, I mean, and if you oh if you go into a craft beer bar tomorrow night, it's a great thing just to drop into a conversation to prove that you know that you've uh, that you're on top of all of the lads' lingo. Yeah, well, the great thing about um, again with the the brew IPA was sort of saying to people, oh, kind of low carb, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because you know generally beers will finish anywhere between sort of one point five. Four plato, yeah. So um, essentially just a little bit more sugar in the end, which gives you really great body. Um, but, yeah, if you are somebody who's, you know, watching sugar intake, a brute IPA might be the way to go. <laughs> I think that is probably a good note to, to uh, pause for our break. Well, I hope you're enjoying our time with Prancing Pony. Uh, I think the uh, interview is a really genuinely interesting one as we hear how the team work together to produce a really broad range of interesting beers. Just a little reminder to me while we have our break from the live Zoom room, uh, we've got some great events coming up. Please grab the packs from our online store. Join us online as we speak to Colonial, uh, as we speak to Wolf of the Willows, 71 Brewing Live from Dundee in Scotland. We've got uh, Goodlands coming up uh, in September. And we've also got a live event out at Co-Conspirators, which I've been brewing some beer for. Uh, with all of those things said, let's go back to the live show. I really hope you're enjoying it. Well, we're back here in the room uh, and I have a confession to make. We're halfway through the podcast and I really should have done better on this front, given that I spent a lot of time working with a South Australian. I've been saying prancing pony like someone from North Bendigo all night, where clearly it should be prancing pony. Warren Wu, can you please come back in? Let's get the ship back on course. And for our Norwegian listeners, can you explain why people in Adelaide pronounce words differently to everyone else in Australia? I am the least qualified to to even begin that conversation. Like, there's there's a plethora, oh. <laughs> a plethora of of YouTube videos on how Australians say things. Um, particularly suburb names of Melbourne. That, that's a classic. Uh, yeah, which I will never, ever get. All right, but back on track, and we'll get the ship back on course. Already there's been a few comments from our chat room saying how much they love uh, they love the, red, the Indian Red Ale. And, yeah, I'm having just cracked my first one. Um, yeah, it's delicious. It's, it's really, yeah, it's a really tasty, yeah, um, you let's use cricketing politics. It's a line. I, I think there's a line and length to it. It's yeah. It reminds me of. It feels really classical. There's something really, really fine and classical about it. Um, uh, Eden, perhaps can you give us a, a a walkthrough with this particular beer and, um, yeah, and your thoughts and and your um and your description of it. Sure. I will give you mine, but I do I do think Frank needs to talk about this beer as well. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah we'll talk about it. Yeah, this absolutely. This beer to me is um, the gorgeous woman at the bar, you know, like it's 
you know, it, how if you think about beers that have characters, um, this beer is really bold. It's beautiful. Um, the balance between the hops and the malt um, is exquisitely done, um, thanks to Frank. And it's one of those beers where you just don't want to stop drinking as well, even though it's not necessarily sessionable. And I found myself in that trouble before. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it's a fruit bowl. And there's also a bit of pine and the way that the hops interact with each other, with the yeast, with the high alcohol flavours as well. Um, it's a beautifully balanced beer and it's actually the first beer I made here. So that's a fun fact. Oh, wow. The, the first beer... Were you, as in the first beer you were allowed to make? The, the first the rest beer that I there, brewed. Or were you involved? Um, the first beer I brewed by myself, unaccompanied by another brewer. Wow. Beer and ale. There you go. And it just so happened on the production schedule. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, ever since then, you know, it's definitely a flagship to me. It's a beautiful beer. It's a reason it's um, still, you know, a bestseller and, and it won. Well, it's the best beer in 2016, quite rightly so. I was yeah. going to say, that was the bit that I was going to explore that I think it's, it's yeah. worth pointing out to listeners is <laughs> that the beer that you were first led to brew by yourself was not just any old core yeah, yeah. beer. It was the beer that is an iconic beer for the brewery and won world's best beer in 2016. I mean, you know, we all have these little moments where we go out to play a game of lawn bowls or whatever, what we do for our time, where we go... Just a little bit of nerves. Did you have a little bit of nerves that first time that you? Of course, just like any any job that you do. Um, but you know, at the time, I had both Frank and um, Ben Britton, who has moved on to another brewery. But he um, was the senior brewer at the time, and I was in very good hands and uh, learned learned from them. So was very happy with that. Frank, tell us about the history of this beer. Like it's one of the it's one of the first, so... Yes. So after we had done the Black Ale, which people liked very much at the time, or still do, because it, it was bold and mold and all the rest, I said, oh, yeah, yeah you should try your hands on, on an IPA. And I said, all right, here we go. I want to do more hoppy beers. And... One of our directors at the time was doing the sales for us. So he went out and was listening to the bottle shops and, and so on. And they advised, yeah, 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 the IPAs that they're coming up, but try something different, make it a little reddish. And so we had the idea, well, we call it India Red Ale instead of India Pale Ale. And at the time, there wasn't really anything like it in the market. I think the closest we tried was Eight Wired. They had a, a reddish IPA. So I went about to design this beer and I wanted it to be quite bold and malty, but with enough hop balance on it. And I didn't worry too much about the style book at the time. And even when it won best beer, I had to submit brewer's notes because it does not fit in an IPI. It does not fit in an imperial red. It's sort of in between. It, 
It has the maltiness and body of an imperial red, but not an not enough hop like an IPA, and of course not a dryness. But anyway, the judges liked it. So we came out with that, and I remember we were still bottle fermenting for carbonation. So we were all in bottles then. And we had it locked in for a launch in a venue in Adelaide. And it wasn't quite finished. <laughs> <laughs> but we went there anyway, and it was it was quite sweet because the post-fermentation sugar hasn't quite fermented out. <laughs> but people were intrigued nevertheless. And then of course we, we gotten better with time. Yeah let it sit in the bottle a little longer and all that on. And it, it was a hit. So we had brought maybe two, 3,000 liters. And we won, we got 25th or 26th on the uh, hottest 100 in beers. I said, all right, if you sell this little beer and you get this many votes, uh, there must be a strong support for that. And we made it ever since. So anyway, 2016 came around. And at the time we were doing some exports into the UK and our agent there said, hey, there's this international beer challenge going on in London, but the deadline is today. Shouldn't we submit something? And I said, yeah, good idea but it's too late to ship you anything. What you got in stock there? So I got a carton left of India red and black ale. All right, let's put them in. I filled out a form paid and he put it in. Uh, the black one a silver, the India red one a gold, and we were over the moon. And of course, two months later, when they did the, uh, the award celebration, they invited us out and said, we can't come. Little did we know we were invited out because it won champion trophy for best in class, then champion trophy for all of them or something. Yeah. yeah, and then Supreme Trophy, which is the highest scoring B of the whole competition. And then people came in and we sold everything on that one weekend. <laughs> so we brewed more and more. So the demand went up, it became our best selling brand. And it still is either number one or number two highest selling volume. So it's got a lot of friends, a lot of fans. They just love it and they keep buying it. And I talked about it a little earlier with having a popular steady brand that people buy repeatedly. Because to me, that's a brand builder. The next, I'm, yeah, go on. No, I'm quite amazed that, that like, like in my head, I thought there'd be a gradual drop off, you know, that it eventually, it would eventually kind of, but it, it still, still kind of iconic because if you're, if you're the best beer in the world, uh, anything in the last decade, you still have a lot of fans, but I'm, I'm surprised that it's, it's kept up when it says good things about the consistency of it. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it dropped off a little after maybe two years, but mm -hmm. then it, it settled in and it's standing there ever since. So it's, it's, it's steady. 
but it, it's not dropping off like a mature product that eventually drops off over time. And it, it attracts people now who are not aware of the 2016 awards that they, they just love the beer. They may have heard mm. from a friend, try this, this is good. So it, it creates new fans as well. Have you thought about, so I suppose it's, a, it's an offshoot, yeah, or or a little similar to what what you did with Blaze, oh, yeah, a little similar to what the thinking behind uh, Blaze of Haze to produce kind of a, a lighter, um, a lighter version to to kind of I don't know pay homage a little bit or 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 kind of go down that line of of here's a sessionable version. Yeah, we discussed that many times, but I always advise that this to us is an iconic beer and we shouldn't tinker with it. I don't want to diminish its popularity, its status it has by bringing out a little brother. Yeah. Yeah. See what um, it, 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 because then we, we would need to call it India Red Air Light or whatever. And then it looks like you're commercializing a brand. Mm-hmm. And even though, yes, we are commercial brewer, we have to make a profit to pay wages and the, the taxation office more so. Uh, we're not going yeah. down that path. Yep, that makes sense. Um, I'm I'm going to go right back because, uh, yeah, as David said, we're jumping around a little bit, but we're kind of enjoying this. That's okay. Um, it's good fun. <laughs> good. Excellent. So I want to talk about, so as, as, as we've mentioned a couple of times, we're getting, we're getting listeners from, from everywhere now. I'm really interested in, in your brewery, in, in, in like your, your, your tasting room or your brew shed. Uh, yeah, tell us what, when someone walks through the door, what should they expect? What's, what what do, are they going to be greeted with? To feel at home. I yeah. Think. yeah. It feels like walking into your own shed, you just kid it out for a family party or some sort of party or gathering to be with your friends. It's, it's very homey, welcoming. It's a bit rustic. A lot of our tables are old. Woodworking benches, wise still working, <laughs> Chesterfield sofas, little stage, we have live music, and people really feel relaxed. And we have the traders coming with their yellow vests, and we have the local business community coming in in their suits for Friday drinks. So, and lots of kids. We're very kids friendly. And dogs. And dogs. <laughs> but you don't let them drink, do you? Just in case someone from liquor licensing is listening. The kids don't get to drink. The dogs. No, don't no, no. The no, dogs no. don't drink. I'm sure. Oh, we provide water for them. Yeah. <laughs> um. It, so, and I loved when you were talking before about about like you know regulars coming in, just bringing some, like a six pack and just going, let's all try it and let's all see what's got out there. Um, how much feedback do you guys get from your your regulars? Do they, are they are they comfortable enough that you guys can kind of banter and and you know talk about what you like and don't like and have that have that interaction about about what you're releasing? A hundred percent. I think actually, Frank, this might be a good time to touch on stumpfish. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. means. Uh, we got a, what's called a stumpfish, which is a German term. It means tribal table. 
And in every German pub, even today, that's the table closest to the bar, which is reserved for the locals and the regulars. You see it a little bit in England too, in other countries. And we created that culture around here. So we have the regulars come around, sit on that table on Friday, and anyone else by invitation. <laughs> Can I ask, there was bits of Austria and Germany that went through where you had to knock on the table before you were allowed to sit down, even as a local, just in case someone was having a conversation uh, that was a bit, little bit sort of a secret conversation. So if yes. people were drinking and sitting around, you'd come over and you'd knock, even if you were a local, knock on the table. Yeah, we don't they, have to. They would finish their conversation, then you could sit down. Yes, you're right, because it was also the table where Sunday mornings after church, the village people, you know, the people with influence, the business owners and so on would discuss local politics and what have you. So they could be in a private confidential conversation and they wanted to be alerted to it, someone else is joining in or not. Yeah, that's true, but we're not going that far. <laughs> oh, no, I, I just really like that bit, which was, it was that bit of, yes, you're welcome to sit with us, but just give us the heads up and let us finish the conversation. You know, we might be deeply discussing how we're going to make sure that the church can build a new steeple or whatever was important for the church. Or, or, or how you, or how the media can company can donate uh, $8,000 a month to um, from a donor and we can siphon that to a political party. Like that sort of conversation, David. You're far more involved in politics in Victoria than <laughs> I am, Warren. That's what you've proven there. Now we don't have this kind of conversation. It's mostly about beer and, of course, how to maximise annoyance to the authorities. <laughs> Actually, out of all the T-shirts that we, we often hear in the call room, just spend our nights imagining what T-shirts we would like to make. How to maximise annoyance to the authorities might be the best suggestion for a T-shirt we've had in a long, long time, can <laughs> yeah. I say. I think there's a lot of breweries who share that, uh, who share that philosophy too. And there's a lot of breweries who are very much along the same lines. Um, I think now that we've, yeah, I think now might be a nice time since we're delving into, into the brewery and, and drinking and, uh, and the stump fish. Uh, let's talk about your cool room uh, or anyone else's cool room for that matter that you've been in. So this is the traditional cool room question. I'm throwing it in a little early, but I think it's a nice time for it. Uh, so what is the most confronting, strange, amusing, disgusting, smelly thing you've ever found in a cool room? And we're quite broad when it comes to a cool room. So we, we ask this because it's usually the place which, which the most awful, weird things or, or as business owners, it's the most annoying thing about the business. So what's the, so in brewing or in restaurants and Eden, you sound like you've done some time behind a bar too. Uh, what's the worst thing you've seen in a, a hospitality venue or a brewery or in the cool room? This has got to be when I was about 14 and a half years old. I had my first um, job at a fast food chain restaurant and I won't specify where. Were they Scottish? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, oh, that, that narrows down half of them. So. Uh, yeah, that's, that's at least 80%. Yeah. But to be straight to the point, essentially you'd have to um, ring the bell to go into the cool room to let the people inside know that you're coming in. 
Mm. Yeah, and if you don't get the two knocks, then you're not supposed to enter. And I was walking in with a manager in front of me who didn't know that rule. And of course, there were two people having a bonk inside the cool room. <laughs> on the silver. On the silver oh, how how regularly were people having bonks in the cool room? That I actually think be- not me, but um, that in that group of people, quite a few. So that Whoa. makes the stumpfish rules look really simple and easy. Yeah, that's fine. Seriously, you don't have to worry. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was my, my first that was at my first ever job. Yeah. Obviously that didn't cool him down. <laughs> now that's a bit that always I got gets fired. Me, <laughs> so yeah. That's probably not a bad result there, Eden. I don't think that's a yeah, getting fired from, from that environment probably says says probably some good things about you. <laughs> oh, no, they got fired. I didn't get fired. Oh, they got fired. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, that's the other thing, yeah. Yeah. Oh. There you go. And, and, Frank, this is, you know, I'm interested to hear your response on this mm. one. Well, I can't top that one. <laughs> I think no the, one... Worst, the worst I saw was just somebody's lunchbox. And I always say no lunches in the cool room because I, I wanted to stay hygienic. Because you, you change couplers to a new cake, mm-hmm. et cetera, and you don't want breadcrumbs or whatever. Somebody lunches in the field with that. I, so I love that. I can see, on that. <laughs> Frank, I can see your, where, where you've come from. I think one of my favourite ever answers to this question was when we had Weinstefan on, and they at one time they said they went to a brewery or a pub in America to see their beer being poured and the lines hadn't been cleaned for a week or so which by Australian standards was, yeah, sure. But the yeah. no lunchbox rule in a cool room uh, is a little bit of an insight into how you run your brewery, I think. 100%. <laughs> Shall we transition from this delicious beer onto the final beer that we're officially tasting tonight? We don't expect everyone to keep up with us. Just savour the beers as you go along. The one that you're going to move on to after the India Red Ale is going to be the Double Black Ale. And we'll have a quick tour of this beer. Please tell us sort of what it should look like in the glass, how it should smell, uh, you know, the flavours we should be getting. We'll have a few audience questions and then, um, then we're going to stop the recording. And that's a reminder to everyone who's listening to the podcast version that you're welcome to join us online on Thursday nights. Uh, whether you're at the Synchrotron in uh, in Melbourne, whether you're somewhere else, I I am such a Synchrotron fan. That a Synchrotron? Really? Yeah, there's people at the Synchrotron listening in tonight. Synchrotron. <laughs> Synchrotron. Um, let's not get too sidetracked into that. Yeah, let's dwell on that later. With it. Uh, please start tell us the story of the double black and what we should be experiencing when we look at it, smell it, taste it. <laughs> All righty. So first off, when we pour this beer, it is very dark um, and there is a thick lacing foam as well, um, typical of a, a black IPA. Um, so we actually have just in our core range, we do have a black ale, which is well and truly loved, but we wanted to bring out a more hoppy version, um, not of the black ale, but of a similar style. And the difficulty with doing this is trying to balance the hop and the malt in a way that the hop comes out because in darker beers, uh, 
dark roasted malts really do come through more than hop per se. So it's about trying to get that hop explosion um, in the aroma. So in this, we have mosaic and citra. And with that, of course, you get, there is a little bit of dunkness and there is lemon and, and a little bit of blueberry from the mosaic as well. And it's just about, about the balance in a different way to what you'd find in a, just a plain black ale. And it really does have that hop flavor really carrying through. I think to me it has achieved a similar balance as our red ale in that it is a very malty base beer, but the hop comes through and being dark malt, the hop actually combines well with the malt and creates other impressions. And yeah, to us, the challenge was how can we have the hop shine in a rather high alcoholic dark beer where, where the mold is dominant from the start. But I think we got that right. I quite like it. Yeah. And again, trying to dry it up and bring up the IBU as well. So what hops are in there, you know, and can you tell us again? Citra, citra and mosaic, simple as that. That's all we – oh, and we had Columbus as a bit of um, bittering hop. But um, citra mosaic all the way through, lots of it. And, and for people who are newer to tasting these kinds of beers and for that matter those hops what you know citra i guess is kind of self-explanatory but can you explain which bits of the flavor palette those hops are contributing to well the citra brings the more fruity citrusy component that mosaic doesn't have but i felt mosaic is a nice hop to play well with a, a, a multi-dark beer because it's more multifaceted than a citra. And it, it works really good. Um, how much, so, how much do you have to, when you're, when you're developing beers, how much do you have to really love them uh, when, you, when you're producing them, when you've decided to, to release them? Like you guys, obviously, particularly with the last two, you've got a, you've got a, a real affection to the, those beers and that's a, understandable because of the, the where they sit. But with your new beers, do you have to have that same, do, the, does it get the same amount of work or the same amount of, do you have to hit those same yeah. heights? Yeah, it would have more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, we have to love them. We have to have the affection. They're like kids. We have to be affect. Have to have that. We affection. love them all differently. <laughs> but yeah, and, and we start out really designing it in our head, obviously. And it is quite challenging to dream up flavors in your head. Uh, it's hard enough to dream out a musical piece in your head, but it's. A bit more, you can't dance in your head and then write notes, but with flavor, it's a bit more difficult, but you can achieve it. And then when you go, wow, I think I got it in my head, then it becomes technical and you just create the recipe and the process sheet to make that happen. And hopefully it does. We usually get at least within 80% of what we intend first go. And when we did that first time last year, we only had one shot at it. So the first goal was solved. 
and we pretty much repeated it this year as it was. Mm. Yeah, we love them. We affect, we affect you. <laughs> it's fantastic to hear people talking about beer with that sort of amount of love. And I guess I'm fascinated to know, you know, the red ale is clearly now the one that is sort of the iconic beer of the brewery. But uh, uh, do beers like this start to become your favourites, or is the red ale always going to have a special place? It's a. I don't want to get too controversial. Well, that that could be a favourite. But why you not, smile when you talk about it? I can. It's not becoming a core range, but as it sits now, it is definitely a seasonal. Uh, people love it. We love it. Uh, so it will be out every winter for a short period. Well, for example, right now we're sitting in a quite a warm office and we can hear the wind gustling outside, creating absolute havoc, and it's pouring down and it's what it's under probably 10 degrees or something now. So this is the perfect beer for this time oh, yes. right now. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if we were standing outside in the sun like we were earlier, probably a lager. See, we call it dark matter on the label and the tasting note just finished. And let's just read out the last paragraph. Dark matter, responsible for gravity, black holes, the essence of dark beers, magic carpet rights and other important things. Uh, we hear where you're coming from. I mean, the fact that you're talking about that while we have people online with us live from the Synchrometron, you know, there's... We've got more quarks flying around this room. We've got, you know, upside down quarks, sideways quarks. Looking to Naomi and Peter, who I should have acknowledged far earlier in tonight, uh, because they've been the people who've set this up for us. So a big shout out, belatedly. I will make sure I get this in the pre-record um, for getting Prince and Pony on. We're going to have a couple of audience questions. We've still got a couple Good. of spaces before we go into that, but. Frank, you sound like was it you were you about to launch into something there. Ah, magic carpet ride and a smile. Uh, so that's a comment. No, <laughs> yes, that's definitely a comment. <laughs> that's all right. They haven't started asking just yet. I think um, for me as well at the moment, the West Coast IPA is definitely a favourite. Do you guys have that in your pack? Don't think we do, do we? We've got nine beers in the pack. It's a great reminder to go over and check the... Yeah, uh, just to see what you have. The Cool Room uh, Shopify, please do, and we'll be putting all these beers on separately if you want to relive this experience. Um, this so we won't stop making strong beers, strong, bold beers, even though there's a supposed trend towards low alk or no alk. And yes, there's a market for it, but we'll still keep doing... Strong beers, and we'll have session beers as well. So, I mean, I think you, you you guys clearly have all of those styles in. But, um, Frank, I guess this is, this is the question for you, which is, you have just there said something which is clearly your philosophy on brewing, which is that big alcohol beers are okay to be producing. What do you want this brand to be known for long term, and? You know, when you and I are sitting around in wheelchairs one day and not coming down to the brewery, what are the two or three things that you want the brewery to be still known for and still doing? 
making beers that are very approachable, even if they're nine percenters, because of their balance and the pleasant. Uh, it's a good, that's a beer, really good answer. Beers, beers you enjoy. It's not a beer you drink because you had a party you want to drive home and you better drink a, a non-alcoholic. Beer is a luxury. It, if we just need liquid to survive, we can drink water. Mm. So to me, drinking beer or wine or anything like that, that that's an indulgence. And we should not be afraid to indulge occasionally. And they're not just go, ah, oh, this is this is too heavy or whatever. Just enjoy and indulge. I mean, look at chocolate commercials. They never talk about sugar-free chocolate. They talk about indulge, treat yourself. And to me, beer falls into that. And if you don't know how to indulge, maybe you should go to a different beverage. The other thing. Beer is a very communal drink. It's really the oldest gig in the world because people come together over meals and drink. And beer has been part of that for 10,000 years or longer. And that's where we talk and socialize and all the rest. So it, it has this very communal thing to it that fascinates me because I see it every day unfolding here. And of course, that we achieve the flavors we do with basically the four basic B ingredients. So we don't play much with, let's say, fruit juice. We do maybe once a year when we make a crazy beer for gaps. But other than that, we stay away from it. I think that's a brilliant answer. And again, I just love the passion that comes through from both of you about you know, your desire for people to enjoy their experience with the beers that you're you're making let's throw to audience questions i've got a couple of other questions i want to ask but uh mr croft are you still there with us somewhere um would you like to unmute and ask your audience question please yeah we 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 touched on this early um before the recording which is uh one of those things if you join the call room on the zoom you get to do and uh you miss That's out a good if plug. you do thank you mate yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> no worries. Really, really well trained. I've been um, learning. Bands. Like, <laughs> it's not your first rodeo, obviously, Dave. No, 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 not at all. Uh, but um, we, we were talking earlier about the, the firebird that used to be on the cans, and you said that was a long time ago. I just wanted to come back to that because that was obviously the original uh, brew house that you were using. Um, and I, I can't recall exactly at what point on the whether whether it came off on the bottles or if it came off on the cans, but um, but uh, ultimately, what what did that original brewery look like, and um, how has it differed and differed since then with the new brew house, and and I guess uh, walk us through the transition of the beers because um, there's there's some here like like the India Red, which was always one of my favourites, that uh, um, have only gotten better and better. So I, I can only imagine you might have agonised over that transition to a different system and what have you. I, I feel like I'm, I'm hosting Q&A on ABC here where I go, oh, should I take that as a comment or was there a question in there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like I, I'm just thinking, you know, like, like, like how hard was it to actually transition and, and keep the quality and, All right. and, 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 and that kind of stuff? <laughs> So when, when we started, uh, 
we kept it low risk because we didn't know if this works out on a commercial scale. And I built my own brew house. It was basically a copy of a direct gas-fired system you can buy on the market. So I, I drew it up sort of a little to my own specs and went to a fabricator to build this. And because it was direct gas-fired, our marketing people went, ah, here's an angle. We can call it fire brood. They're all right. <laughs> and so it was. But we had, uh, in the beginning, lots of burned meshes and what have you, because it's very delicate to do. And yet the transition was a bit of a challenge, because by that time, we were now with the fire brood that has special effects. And it, it, it has to some extent. But we were brewing six days a week on this uh, thousand liter brew house and we decided we need to buy a bigger one and of course we bought one the usual system which is cheap steam jacket heated and uh, what are we going to do now because people come and say oh you're no longer fire brew so it's all crap now yeah it, it was a bit difficult you had to get the message right without harping on too long not attract attention on one hand but say yeah look it's we have other ways to get the same flavor and so on and it did work in the end no one really talked about it anymore after six or six months or so in but it it, it was a transition more from a marketing point than how we present this than from a technical point uh, the first brew we did, I remember that when we installed the system here, the, the, what we have now, the 30 hack, the technician came out, we put it all together. It took exactly one week and we did our first test brew and we sold that brew. So I was confident enough that that first brew we did on the new system tastes like on the old system. That was a commercial brew, not a test brew in the end. So the technical transition wasn't too hard, but keeping the message, transitioning the message was a little difficult. Can, can I ask, I'm fascinated by the, so how early on did you have people involved in marketing that, that uh, wasn't you? And how no, did you feel about that? Pretty much from the start, although, you know, when, when when you say the word marketing, people think of TV commercials and all that sort of stuff. Marketing can be very subtle, but you, you still have to get your message out in whatever subtle ways and what your budget allows you to do. And for us in the beginning, it was just walking into bottle shops and talking about it. So marketing it that way, talking about it, have little posters, little things, now advertising that wide. So that, that's the sort of marketing. As we grew, we engaged graphic design companies, for example, to do our labels and so on. And it grew from there. But even now, we do relatively little marketing because we're not on TV, we're not on radio, we're not in the printing press much. But it's our marketing is a lot still directed at the point of sale at the bottle shop to attract the, the customer. Yeah. I, the ones who know us, that yeah, we're here, we can get it. 
And those who don't know, yeah, it's an interesting brand. Maybe I grab this and take it home. If I would start over again, I would start with a lot more cash. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe a third is of that is necessary to buy the hardware. The rest I would spend on marketing. <clears throat> can can I ask what industry you were in before this? Because I yeah. guess that's one of the things we didn't. Speak. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Quite well, a, you seem quite open to ideas in a way that, not every brewery is. Some brewers go, I've decided I want to open a brewery and all I want to make is this and it will be this style and it's my way or the highway. You seem a lot more open to things than that. Eden, can also <laughs> comment on that question. Yeah, I see what you mean. And you can make the best beer your way, but if no one buys it because no one knows you, then what do you do? Then it's a hobby, not a business. So anyway, my background, I come from mechanical engineering. And when I came to Australia, actually, it was that time, I decided to go study physics, which I did. And then I worked 15 years in research. Wow. At the synchrotron? As so you know I'm what a synchrotron quite, is. You're probably, yeah. There was a, a bit of plasma physics involved in the area I worked in. And, you know, I had patents and whatever for the company I worked for. And then I sort of came back to the engineering manufacturing area I grew out of as a, either project manager, operation manager for equipment manufacturing companies. And that bought me after a while. And I, then I started doing contract project management, mining industry, and so on. And, but eventually, I had enough of the corporate trap. I call it like that. And, I said, there's two things I'm going to do, one or the other. I either open a business or I'm going to write a book titled Corporate Crap because <laughs> I've seen enough of it and know how it doesn't work. <laughs> and that then, as I talked before, led me to the idea of going into some sort of business that makes something you either eat or drink because it's, it's pleasure. I mean... We like eating and drinking. It's special. We do more eating than what we need to have. Otherwise, I just eat oats all day. But we, love, we want to have flavorsome things as well. So that's mm. what got me into this. Eden, can I ask, when you, when you hear Frank talk about his transition from things he didn't enjoy into the industry that he's now in, what do you see in your future? Are there beers that you've never made that you want to make? Are there... Do you want to go and open a tomato sauce factory to, as we start to sort of come full circle? What's what's on your wish list that you've never done? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, Thank you. That's what I'm hearing. Here hearing um, Frank talk about his history is always amazing and actually working with him, as I'm sure you can um, assume, is incredibly interesting um, because he's just got so much knowledge on so many different things. Um for me, I think my main goal, or at least for now, you know, that this might change, I don't know, but it's just to experience as much as I can um, within the industry and just see um, what styles become really popular and just keep trying to make the product better and better and better. And you learn that from, you know, not having that closed mind of it's my way or the highway. You've got to listen to the people around you because they are also experiencing and learning and we all learn from our own mistakes. And if we all share that, then we can just make better beer for the industry. Hmm. 
it's a really good answer. And you two seem to work as a team in a really fun way. I, I love to explore the bits that, when it's not working so well. Is there any time that you can both happily talk about where you weren't on the same page or has it always been easy to work together? Well, it's, it's definitely become more easy. Like since we've gotten to, well, we've worked together for six years. You can't not know somebody in that time, I suppose. Um, what do you think? I'll let you talk about that. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's certainly things that maybe we might maybe butt heads on sometimes, but I think the main thing is coming back to we both always bring facts. And it's, it's never about, I think we should do this because I want it this way. It's never to do with that. It's a, we sh- I think maybe we should go in this direction with this because this is the research I've found. Oh, I've found different research. Oh, okay, let's try that. Then, oh, that didn't work. Let's try something else. So it's not so much um, fighting and bickering. It's just working together to have the same goal, to have the same outcome, which is great beer to be enjoyed by everyone and continuously improving it. That's a good can. answer. Mm, that's an but that's answer. that's what you do when we have a problem. It, it may be how can we get how can we keep suspension in the neighbor? And there's always frustration as well. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, I mean, Eden does her research already before she sees me. So I found about this that is what you think, and not. Oh, I want to do it that way because it's a hunch. We never do anything on a hunch. No. We, we, we want to have some facts first. And yet you never have all facts all the time. And I always say you've got to make a decision when you have between 40 and 60% of the facts. If you go below 40, you run a risk you're too wrong. You, you wait till you have more, more 60 you run out of time and the competition's already done it. And that's it. And that's another <laughs> thing is worrying, worry, over worrying about certain things, for example, and just being open. So if I'm getting a little fixated on something because I've over-researched something to a point where my brain's going to explode, Frank will bring me back down and say, stop worrying about it. You know, <laughs> yeah. calm down. It's, you know, yeah. I think that comes from experience too. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I suspect Frank, yeah, yeah. And just knowing like in the end it might will probably turn out how it turns out. Um yeah, I think Dave probably knows about that. I'm just getting to that stage of my life, but yeah. <laughs> I when I listen to you guys talk as a team, like genuinely, I spend so many so much time with organizations that don't know how to communicate internally. Mm. Yeah. You guys just seem to have a natural feel, new ideas historical knowledge but also a, a similar goal in the future it's it's really yeah. exciting i've loved these couple of hours that we've been able to spend together i'm going to ask david craig to ask a very melbourne specific question and then i think warren Wu is going to wrap things up for us but just from me to you guys thank you for spending some time with us tonight it's been fantastic the beers are awesome thank you so much david craig thanks david yeah, the beers are awesome. Uh, I'm going to be getting my blaze of haze, my extra blaze of haze and double black from the cool room. But I'm always interested. I really empathise with um, the situation of of small breweries um, about your outlets, how you merchandise. Um, do you have? I'm being selfish. I'm in Melbourne in, in a 
suburban Melbourne. Do you have outlets in Melbourne or should we order you uh, directly online? What's what's your business model, I guess, with distribution it, of your beer? You can do either. You can do either. The best is to look at our website where we have outlets. Over the last two years during COVID, we lost a lot of business on the East Coast everywhere because everyone was going hyper-local, which is understandable. Everybody wanted to support a local brewery. And we're just getting back into Melbourne. Uh, we visited customers just in May and they were happy to see us and all good, now they relaxed. So we're restocking the venues we have been in in Melbourne. And that's an important market for us. But give, us, give it a little more time. Check us out. We're definitely in some venues there. But COVID put a hold on it. Yeah. Um, and one last, uh, one last audience question from uh, Jacob, who is a regular of ours. Um, yeah, go ahead, Jacob. Uh, thanks, Warren, and uh, thank you to Prancing Pony for being with us tonight. Um, uh, quite enjoying the Black IPA. Uh, it's just a style you don't see everywhere, and I'm happy when people are still doing it and doing it well. Uh, but my question was very simply, uh, what's your favourite style of beer that's gone out of fashion that you wish had come back into fashion? I'd like an answer from both of you. Like you mentioned earlier, like Blonde was part of your original offering, and I thought, God, I haven't seen a Blonde in a long time, and hence why you probably dropped it. But what would you like to come back? For me, it's old style, dank, spicy IPAs that just, <laughs> you know, give you a whack on the back of the head. That's what I miss but because it's gone out of style and people don't want that in their beer anymore. I miss it so much. I miss the pine needles and the uh, um, it, the true dank. Oh God! It's it. a, a couple of examples of that that are still going around. What if if someone has listened yeah. to the podcast, just started drinking craft beer? Are there any beers like that they should go and try and experiment with? Please let me know. <laughs> I can't think of you're right. I can't not the not old school kind of really weedy, yeah. 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 Can yeah. I interject and say a lot of Kiwi breweries are still making some really dank beers? That's yeah, right. You know, like Panacious Weed or things like that. Absolutely. You know, so I'd look over Mandarin. the Tasman for them, but and, and frank, I can I to, <laughs> to me, there's also a philosophical aspect to the answer Eden just gave, because I would have said exactly the same. Having been around for that long and tried craft in the late 80s, when craft really was the proverbial finger up to mega brew, mm. and that's gotten a little lost. It's no longer the finger up to the mega brew so much. It's, uh, I got this new thing, I got this new thing, I got this new thing. And I wonder where we are going to end up with this one day. Because we might lose identity. Why did we start this in the first place? I mean, there's people before us, 40 years ago, even longer, who started all that. And I hope that reason and philosophy will never get lost, but it might. 
Can I make a cheeky comment and um, this may get edited out, but I would say I love that, and there's no easy way of saying this, but probably the more senior person in the room said, where's the punk attitude gone for craft beer? Exactly. And, and I love that, you know. <laughs> See, I, what I loved was Reason and Philosophy, which is very close to one of my favourite Immanuel Kant books. So, you know, <laughs> Reason and Knowledge, Reason and Philosophy, that's, a, that's, that's good. See, for example, the trend for no alcohol was created a few years ago by the mega brewers because they run out of options. So they created this perception, millennials are health conscious. Yeah, they are. Okay, let's equate no alcohol with health conscious. Oh, it is a point. So they push that because they have the technical ability to do that really well. And mm. By the way, many craft brewers I spoke to privately admitted, I said, what do you think of low alcohol? That, well, the best one is Heineken because it's so hard to do yeah. <laughs> without spoiling the taste. So and it's quite intriguing that the small brew is following a trend that's been set by the mega brewers where 30, 40 years ago it was, yeah, the finger, now we're doing it our way. This this might be a question that's cut out too, but I'm really interested because we we had we had one Stefano on uh, we've we've had them on a couple of times now, and their their part of their take if if I'm not wrong is that like the the no alcohol very low alcohol beer is part of German culture because the flavor is the most important thing. So Frank, as someone who has been been part of that. Is it different? Because I, I think the Weinstefana zero alcohol beer is 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 really good. Like it's a really good expression of what the what, Hellas is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Like so so is it are we now following a trend going well? It, it is marketing. You're absolutely right. Yeah. But are we are we now finally saying it's the beer flavor that's more important than the beer alcohol? Well, to me, it's still the beer flavor, but. You asked the question, yes, I was around. Mm. And thinking back of my time in Germany, no alcohol beer was always around. This is mm. nothing new. And where it was sold was at the roadhouses. Because legally, a roadhouse in Germany has to be open 24-7, and mm. it's licensed. So no alcohol was always an option. When you pull up 3 o'clock in the morning in your car to refill you don't want to drink an alcoholic beverage, mm-hmm. so I understand. So they always made it, and they always made it pretty good. Yeah, yeah, this absolutely. Is nothing new, but it's now marketed out of yep. linear yep. that linear Yeah, I yeah, yeah. can't yep. quite see it because we have a venue and we have busloads coming in on the weekends doing their buck show or what have you. And I see him buying four rounds of martinis before they try their first beer. Low <laughs> alcohol, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very they don't need to try if they want to indulge. Uh, on that note, that was that was a really good answer. On that note, thank you very much, Frank, and thank you very much, Eden. Your no, your time you. has thank been so amazing. Like it's and and the the discussion has been fascinating. Like we've I think we've got a real great sense of what Prancing Pony is all about. Um, I'm going to finish by just checking in and saying, look, um, now I believe we can find you on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Prancing Pony Brewery. 
um, yeah, yeah. on both of those. And and you also have a YouTube, you also have a YouTube page. And not many of the breweries we, we have on have. Yeah, you know, we, we do. Have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, um, developing. Yeah, yeah, I love but it. It's, it's, it's like yeah, I think that's that's very new world. That's uh, that's awesome for a brewery. Um, it, because it can be time consuming, so it's great. Uh, so check them out. Um, and and of course visit if, uh, for any of our listeners. Visit if you're in South Australia. It's it's been it's been wonderful. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for having thank us, you. guys, and thanks to everybody for organising. Kamasua. <laughs>